down at Daniel chapter 3, and I will begin reading in verse 14. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are already, if you are ready when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it usually was heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men who were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw the fire had not had any power over their bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him, and set aside the king's command, and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Let's pray. Father, we ask now for just special understanding and grace as we consider these words. Lord, we pray that the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego 
but go much further than um, our Sunday school memories of this story. So Lord, be with us now, we pray. Amen. As um, Western people, as 21st century high schoolers, when we think of bowing down to a big golden image, we probably think it's a little silly. Bowing down to a god fastened out of gold or metal or some type of wood seems like something the ancients did. However, if I were to come and have a conversation with you and begin to tell you five reasons of why you having more things will make you happy, you would equally, I think, tell me like that, Aaron, you're wrong. Everyone knows that having more things doesn't necessarily make you more happy. Or if I told you that every single moment, what you need to do in order to be happy is to choose the thing in that moment that brings you the most amount of pleasure. So if you are in math class and your teacher is annoying you, if it brings you good pleasure in that moment just to stand up and to swear at them and to walk out, you need to do that. If, uh, if you think getting drunk right now will bring you the most pleasure in this moment, you need to do that. I think you would equally look at me and say, are you on drugs, Aaron? That makes no sense. You see, we might look at the idea of bowing down to a big statue as barbaric, but I guarantee that even though we might hear the argument for things like consumerism and hedonism, we still very much live in a world where we bow down to the gods of consumerism, to the god of hedonism, to the god of success, to the god of sports, to the god of money. You see, as I, as I consider Daniel chapter 3, which is like, I think for a lot of us, we probably have heard this story before. Um, one of my first memories of Sunday school actually involved a flannel graph of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And we even sang a little song about them that I, I can't quite remember. And for some reason, for all these years, I kind of just have taken it to be, um, hey, don't bow down to other gods, only serve the true God. And if you ever go into a fiery pit, guess what? Jesus will come, be with you, and save you from the fiery pit. There's a book that I've been reading called You Are What You Love. And in it, he describes um, what is the same about all of us. Is that all of us are driven, not by the things that we know, but rather by the desires in our heart. And the desires of our heart aren't shaped by things that we're told, but rather they're shaped by the small, overlooked things or the habits that we do each day. And so his premise is, I can tell you all day long why consumerism is wrong, but the desire to have more things, because we all know what it's like to get a new pair of shoes, to get new clothes or the smell of a new car. We all know the feeling that that gives us. 
And we all know the times when we are really, really angry and we just snap at someone. And, and guess what? It feels kind of good. It feels pleasurable. And what's fascinating about that book is he argues that, therefore, every single day in life, every time you turn on the radio, every time you walk in the mall, every time you go to school, there are competing liturgies or competing gods rivaling against each other, asking us to bow down and to serve And so if you remember anything about the context of the book of Daniel, so far we have seen that these people are living in a land in which they are bent against God and against his own people. And so what's interesting about the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is that it is furthering trying to encourage God's people to not think that God has abandoned them, To not think that the Babylonian gods are greater than the God of Israel. But rather, it is this passage is what I like to think is is showing us. Oh, there we go. That God will use persecution to strengthen our resolve to trust him. So, people living in a land that's not their own with and among people who do not see things their way. How are God's people to be encouraged? They're to be encouraged by this. Guess what? You're going to get persecuted, and it's going to be hard. See, that's not like that's not like, like the easiest sell. You know what I'm saying? Like, hey, come be a Christian. You will suffer persecution. That's not quite the message that I want to hear. And so what I, like I said, I want to be brief tonight. And so what I would like us to consider are three aspects of what persecution teaches us from this passage. So, Riley said he fixed it, but I don't think he did. I didn't touch this thing. Oh, really? <laughs> this is, this is last week's. Keep going, he says. All right, here we go. <laughs> Sorry. I'm technologically like disadvantaged, but um, the first thing that this passage teaches us about persecution is this is that in the world we live in, there is the pressure to be the same. So if we didn't read the first part of the story, but the context is this King Nebuchadnezzar makes this huge golden statue and he makes a decree that every single person in Babylon needs to come down um, from where they're at and bow down to this big image. It's this big, huge, it says it's 90 feet tall. And now, Daniel chapter 3 probably brings the most amount of speculation. Um, of things about where is Daniel in the story, what is this statue, a lot of different things. But, more than likely, what this image represented is that it represented not just one particular god, but it represented all of the gods of Babylon. So if you think about Babylon for a second, it was a place where King Nebuchadnezzar had a lot of different territories, a lot of different providences, a lot of different people from people groups and tribes and nations. And if you remember, what their job was to do was to make everyone assimilate into Babylon culture. They want everyone to be the same. And as a king, why do you want that? 
Because as long as people maintain a distinctiveness about them, they are going to want to revolt. And so time and time again, when they bring people into the land, we saw this in Daniel 1, they try to assimilate Daniel by making him eat the same food, by making him learn the language, by giving him a new Babylonian name. In the same way, this statue was a representative of everyone in Babylon. Therefore, this, this golden image, this distinct to bow down to, was a way in which they were trying to make everyone the same. Everyone, come and be like us and bow down to this God. The process of assimilation is always this. Take away what is distinctive from them and make them more like us. I recently had some friends go to China and they were doing some missionary work there, working in orphanages. And so they took a tour of Beijing, um, which is the capital of China. And so they were kind of seeing all like the main parts of the city of Beijing. And the tour guide asked them, what are you in China for? And, you know, and they're just kind of like, well, we're doing some mission work. We are working with orphanages and we're trying to spread the love about Jesus. And this tour guide, uh, being good Chinese, like, um, said a same said, oh, that's great. You know, people don't think this, but in China, we actually believe in the freedom of worship. We, we have churches in China. It's not illegal. In fact, you can go into that building over there, and you can have all the church that you want, but all we ask is that when you leave that building, that you kind of just... Don't let it affect your day-to-day. But every time you go into church or you go into that building, you can sing whatever song you want to sing. You can hear whatever you want to hear. But just when you come into the, the world, you can't just bring that with you. And she was trying this, and my my friend, actually it was my father-in-law telling me this, she was trying to make the case that we are just like America. You can believe whatever you want to believe in your head. You can believe whatever you want to believe in your head, but when you're in culture, when you're at your job, when you're raising your kids, when you're at their grocery store, be like us. You see, there's a difference between freedom of religion and freedom of worship. Freedom of worship says, yeah, hey, go into that building on Sunday nights, sing your Jesus songs, listen to those sermons on Daniel. However, when you come to school on Monday morning, don't bring that with you. Don't bring your Christian ethics into how you work. Don't bring your Christian ethics into how you want to live your life relationally. And so as I consider the story about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego being forced to be the same, being forced to say, hey, listen, everyone is included on this. You guys can't get out of it. You need to bow down and assimilate. You need to get in line. See, I think the application for this point is far more than just don't give in to peer pressure. Be different, right? I mean, I love my mom with all my heart, and I, I just got to see her, saw her this week, and it was nice. But I remember a lot of times in middle school and early parts of high school, she would kind of say, hey, Aaron, 
you know, when you're with your friends and, and, they, and they want you to do something that you know isn't right, you just need to kind of, you know, find some different friends or just kind of uh, divert and say, maybe we should do this instead, you know, and just don't give in to that peer pressure. I remember in sixth grade, I took D.A.R.E., you know, D.A.R.E. to avoid drugs or something, I don't know, uh, alcohol and which is so fascinating. Like a year later, in seventh grade, like some of my friends were like getting drunk, and I'm like, "Bro, didn't you like listen during dare? Like, did that not work on you? I don't know." Anyways, did you guys take that in Washington dare? Yeah. 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 It got disbanded. It got disbanded. Oh. <laughs> What's that? You're fine. You're fine. So, what is the application? What are God's people called to do in a world where there is the pressure to be the same? Because do you notice a little bit, guys, listen, do you notice that in our world, hey, be loving, be kind. You could be a Christian. However, if you for a second say there's absolutes, how dare you? You know, in a world that screams and cries for tolerance a second, you, you say something is absolute, it is almost as if uh, death to you. How, how bigoted are you? And even now, as, we, as I look to the culture more and more, there, there is this same call, be like us, assimilate or die. Bow down or die. Living in a post-truth world means that Absolute claims are abhorrent. So here's my question for you guys. As Christians who live in the midst of Babylon, will you bow down to the desire for all of us just to be the same? Do you look the same as all of your friends? Your believing friends and non-believing friends alike? When you have either teachers or bosses or friends who put pressure on you to just to be like them and to abandon truth, how do you respond? You see, something I've learned about my own heart, um, I, I, I have learned this, that when I'm around certain people, I am far um, more likely to pick up the bad habits that they have than for them to pick up the good habits that I have. One very small practical thing is something I just, I know about this in my own life, is that when I'm around people who let their mouth just say whatever, I I am a lot more quick to pick up that habit than I am uh, to influence them on something good. And that's where I just think um, it's, it's ingrained in us to want to be the same. You know, someone once said, you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with. And if you think about the five people you spend the most time with, I mean, your family and maybe people outside of that, um, I I think that 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 rule of thumb, I think, does go a long way. And so if we remember really quick the people in Israel who are being forced to assimilate, what were they dealing with? What were they struggling with? Assimilate or die. 
in a world that wants us all to be the same and to bow down to either the God of consumerism or the God of hedonism, do whatever feels good at the moment, to the God of success, to the God of sports, to the God of money, I think a big one, the God of sex. Will we bow down and assimilate or will we be different? And that's just to our second point. Um, which shows us a little bit the cost of faith. So look down at verse 16 through 20. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or Worship the golden image that you set up. Now, this I think this point shows us the cost of what faith and dependence and relying on God will often cost us. But really quick, something about this story about um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is I think they really show us the nature of what true faith looks like. Um, can you imagine for a second, by the way, of say thousands? Of, like, I always kind of pictured this in my mind when I heard the story. There's like a multitude of people, like 15,000 people, and they all bow down, and then there's like three people left standing, and they're like, hey, you three, come with us. You're in big trouble. Like, how did they know? Um, how, how did they actually get found out? You know, did the king Nebuchadnezzar send out spies to like find who was going to like not bow down? But I love what they say, right? It's like, oh, king... We believe that our God, if he throws us in the fiery furnace, will deliver us. But guess what? Even if he doesn't, even if we do burn in there, we will not worship your gods. You see, all throughout the New Testament, all throughout the Bible, this is what we learn about what faith. Faith is depending, it is relying, it is trusting that God alone is the person that we need, desire, and want more than any other God, person, or thing. Let me say that again. The nature of faith teaches us that no other God or person or thing can give me what I need or desire other than God. See, that's a really easy thing for me to say. And even I can admit that. When we talk about faith, uh, the same synonymous word we use is the word believe. I believe in Jesus. But here's the problem. What are we trusting and believing in Jesus for? You see, what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were doing is they were demonstrating that their trust for God, that their dependence on Him, was for everything in life. It wasn't just for times when they felt really bad. They trust in God to make them feel better. But do you know what the common practice of this time was? Most people back then were very like polytheists. Like they had multiple gods. And so when a decree like this would come out, people were like, kind of like, well, I already have 13 gods. Uh, what does one more do? And so kind of what they did is they were so used to having God plus God plus God plus God, and now we got this other one to bow down to. That's fine. I have the God who helps my crops. I have the God who helps my health. I have the God who helps my fertility. 
I have all these different gods that I bow down to. And what true faith and true dependence on God says is that Yahweh, Elohim, the true God of Israel, is the only God that I will depend on. And so what they're saying is, oh, king, guess what? We believe that our God is the only God that we should bow down to ever. And that's not something they made up. That's being faithful to the law that God gave them. But you see, for us, when we say, I believe in Jesus, yet when we want to feel good about ourselves, and we need people to tell us and reaffirm us, like, hey, you're really good at this sport, man. Hey, you're, you're, such, you're so good looking. We are trusting in other people's words to give us the worth and the acceptance that we need. That sounds a lot like, to me, of trusting in God plus something else. I trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of my sins, but to make my life really great, I need to work really hard. I trust in God plus, plus, plus. You see, how many of you, myself included, can actually say that our trust and dependence looks like having no other God, person, or thing giving us the things that we need, desire, or want other than God. You see, here's the issue that I'm wrestling with here. If we were here in Babylon with King Nebuchadnezzar, we wouldn't be Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We'd be like every other person who had God plus another God plus another God, plus another God. Oftentimes, in our own faith with Jesus, we are trusting in our own performance. We are trusting in our own strength. We are trusting in our own piety and our own devotion. We are trusting in the fact of, you know, I read the Bible six days this week. Maybe God's really happy with me. We are trusting in the fact that, hey, guess what? Well, I'm still a virgin. Well, hey, I've never been drunk. Well, hey, I'm not as bad as that person. I have a few mistakes, but I'm not as bad as them. And all that really says is that that tells us that we are trusting in God plus something else. And so the third thing that this story teaches us um, is what I call the promise of the furnace. Now, the story is really interesting, okay? So... Um, King Nebuchadnezzar is really mad, and he, and he heats up the furnace seven times. Now, some people argue about whether or not that's just being, like, uh, using hyperbole or whatever. Because, like, I, I kind of think that way, because, like, how do you really know if it's seven times hotter? I just assume that it's really hot, because the people who put Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the fire died, right? So that must mean it's pretty hot, Okay. And so it says that somehow King Nebuchadnezzar had a, a certain vantage point to where he can like see in the fire and not die because the other people died looking in. And he looks in and he sees something. It says that he sees another person, and in verse 25, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. You see, anytime the word fire 
or furnace is used in the Bible, it oftentimes is describing suffering and pain and trials. And so really what this passage is teaching us is teaching us a little bit of the nature of persecution. Now, I remember like a few weeks ago, I was talking with Blake here, and he was mentioning to me how hard it is for Americans to think through suffering, to think through persecution. And do you know what's fascinating? Is that every single country in the world expects to suffer except for Americans. When Americans suffer, we immediately think, someone is doing something to me. But the rest of the world expects it, and they assume that bad things will happen, that hard times will come, that we all will have some type of suffering. And so I think there are three things that the promise, I guess we could say the promises of the furnace. The first thing is this. That suffering, guys listen, suffering is inevitable. If we are going to trust in God alone, suffering is inevitable. So 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, it says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. So 1 Peter is actually written to a context of people who are suffering, and he tells them, don't be shocked when you suffer, as if something strange were happening to you. Now, for some of you, that might be like a redundant point, an easy point, something that we can expect and assume. But here's the thing, guys. At some point in our life of relying on Jesus, of being a Christian, I would say this, if we never suffer, if we never have a trial, if we are never in a way being put in the furnace, I think it shows that we're doing something wrong. I guess it it saddens me to see this thing that we call the prosperity gospel that says, hey, if you just trust in God, you get the best life imaginable. But in fact, here's the thing. If you become a Christian, suffering is inevitable. Suffering is inevitable. The second thing that that suffering teaches us, or persecution, we could say, is that it makes our faith more like gold. So 1 Peter 1, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, Though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is what suffering does to our faith. Listen. Whether we suffer or we experience grief or loss or just a flat out storm in life, this is what it helps. It helps our faith become more precise. It helps our faith become more grounded and rooted. Did you see how, how precise their faith was? But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. 
You see, when they suffered persecution, their faith was not this simple kind of like, well, you know, we just kind of, we were singing um, from, the, from the inside out this morning, and, you know, I was just really kind of feeling the words again. I know it's an old song, but I just got those warm, fuzzy feelings, you know, that you get when you, like, hear that song when the electric is being played. Do, 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 you know? And I just feel like I, I just shouldn't bow down to it. Like, their faith isn't some mystical little thing. Their faith is actually grounded in their trust and their firm resolve that what? That their God would rescue them. That their God would deliver them. And so here's the thing, guys. When we go through trials, when we go through hardships, think of the guy who wrote the song, It Is Well. Like, one, I resonate with that song because he had four daughters who died on that shipwreck. And he, and he looks at the very place in which his daughters died. And somehow he can muster up the words to say, whatever my lot has taught me to say, it is well. It is well. See, in that moment, his, his faith is not just some mystical thing, but it is actually more precise. It is more grounded. And that is what the furnaces, the trials, the storms of life teach us. Also, it helps us to have a faith that is of good quality. And so I I just think when we go through hard weeks or seasons or years, it's not for no purpose. It's for the purpose of strengthening our faith that it is good quality, that it's getting rid of the impurities, that it's getting rid of, I need to have some huge loud worship band in order to worship well. It's getting rid of a faith that, that rarely even considers opening up God's word, or rarely considers praying to God for the day. Trials in life are the quickest and surest thing of creating a faith or a trust in Jesus that is of any worth. And so the third promise of the furnace is this. It makes us more like Jesus. I, I, sometimes I, I mention this, I speak better than I know, and I think King Nebuchadnezzar is a great example of that. So King Nebuchadnezzar came near the door of the burning, fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not have any power over their bodies. And so verse 29, excuse me, verse 28. Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. You see, King Nebuchadnezzar by no means was a follower of Yahweh. Absolutely by no means. But here's what he says. No other God is able to rescue in this way. See, in that, in that situation, I think he's speaking better than he knows. You see, the Bible teaches us that Jesus had to come from heaven and come into this world, into his own exile. And when he was in exile, he also was tempted to serve and to bow down. When Jesus was in Um, the wilderness being tempted by the devil, he was tempted by everything that we are tempted with. Yet, 
Jesus remained faithful to God. But Jesus had to experience his own furnace. And when we say furnace, what exactly is a furnace? You know, every single one of us, because of our inability to love God with all of our, with all of our being and, and to not love our neighbor, means that we have separation from God. Which means we have no relationship with him. Which means that when we die and we don't know God, we are void of his presence altogether. And that is what we call hell. To be separated from God's presence. A furnace. But you see, Jesus came to earth and on the cross, he suffered his own hell. Separation from the Father. The most fieriest furnaces of all in order that we wouldn't have to. You see, no other God can save like our God. Every other God says this. Trust in God plus this, plus this, plus this. Trust in your performance. How often you read your Bible. How often you come to church. How often you just try to avoid acting out sexually. And then you'll be saved. But the God of the Bible, Jesus, is the only God who's saved in the way and says, I will go into the fiery furnace for you so you won't have to. And so here's the thing. When we have our own trials and furnaces that we go through, I think what we're called to remember is the fiery furnace that Jesus went through. And when we think of Jesus and what he went through, I think we'll begin to think that our furnace isn't so bad. Our furnace isn't going to last forever. And in fact, when we can begin to think about Jesus and what he did by separating himself from the Father on the cross, we can actually begin to become more like him. And so Daniel chapter 3, guys, is this. It is God showing us how he uses the hard times of life, how he uses persecution to strengthen our resolve to trust in him. God can use persecution to remind us of what Jesus went through in order that we wouldn't have to. And by doing so, resolving for us to trust in Jesus alone, to not bow down to any other God, but to trust only in Jesus. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this portion of your word. And Lord, we just ask that as we head to small groups that you would bless our conversations. Be with us now, we pray. Amen. Um, I'm sorry, I went too long. I was not brief. Uh,